The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm Rob Cox, global editor of Reuters Breaking Views. To mark the 10-year anniversary of the collapse of Lehman Brothers and the near-death spiral it caused in the international financial system, we are presenting a series of interviews with policymakers, regulators, and bankers who are caught up in that maelstrom a decade ago. Give a listen to 10 Years After. Hello, I'm Anthony Curry, one of the editors at Reuters Breaking Views. September 2008 is best known as the month when Wall Street got whacked. Lehman Brothers failed, U.S. taxpayers bailed out AIG, and the government took control of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But these weren't the only calamities. Washington Mutual went under, thus becoming the largest bankruptcy of a lender in U.S. history. And America's fourth largest bank, Wachovia, was teetering on the edge. Sheila Baird joins me today to delve back into these and other moments of the financial crisis. She was on the front line dealing with both these troubled lenders as chair of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the regulator charged with safeguarding Americans' checking and savings accounts and finding new owners for the assets of failed banks. And she wrote a bestseller about her time at the FDIC called Bull by the Horns, fighting to save Main Street from Wall Street and Wall Street from itself, which kind of tells you where the book goes, but it's, it's well worth reading. So, Sheila, thanks very much for coming back onto the exchange. Uh, sure, happy to be here. So let's start by looking at those two big lenders, Wachovia and Washington Mutual. Um, now, when people look at this from the outside, they often see regulators appear to be scrambling to, to sort things out. But how did it get to the, I mean, That can't be how it happens, I'm sure. And I'm reading your book, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's not. But let's just go over sort of how it did get to the point yeah. where both those firms and others, I mean, Indymac, uh, and I think in July 2008, uh, had to be closed or sold. Were regulators, and there were many regulators uh, covering yeah. these banks, <laughs> were, were they missing a trick? Or, or, or what was the deal? Well, I, I think uh, for uh, let's, let's take them in turn. Uh, IndyMac and WAMU had the Office of Thrift Supervision as their primary regulator, and uh, so the Congress abolished uh, that OTS, what we called OTS back then, uh, as part of the Dodd Frank legislation. So, but because they had a, a bit of a weak record in their supervisory responsibilities, IndyMac, uh, which failed relatively early, that was July. Um, we had it on the projected failure list, and we're starting to prepare for a failure. Uh, the problem was it's an accelerated failure. Well, look, when a bank's regulated, uh, and I think you need to distinguish between regulated institutions where you have examiners on site uh, having a better handle of the situation, and an institution like Lehman Brothers, which mm-hmm. was not – they had a teeny thrift, but they were mainly a you know securities firm, an investment bank, that where we did not have access to information. But for regulated insured banks, where we had examiners on site, we could look at their, the capital erosion of, you know, increasing losses on their assets and project, you know, we would have a, a list of projected failures. And IndyMac was already on that list uh, for the end of the year. Uh, the problem is a prominent United States senator wrote a very public letter and released it to the press uh, suggesting that IndyMac was insolvent. And, uh, yes, that um, wasn't very and, helpful. And, and, no, it was not helpful, and so that precipitated a run. So it really was a liquidity failure. They still had some capital left. They were burning through it pretty fast. But they had a, they, there was a run on uninsured deposits uh, when this very public statement was made by a very credible U.S. senator that they were basically insolvent. So um, we, we had to accelerate that closure, and uh, I regret that because – well, we did. We protected all insured depositors. We gave them, you know, they did. There were no interruptions in their access to their insured deposits. 
But uh, there was one misstep we made, which I kick myself to this day, is that we didn't wait until after regular closing hours uh, to close the bank. So actually, right. the OTS actually closed the bank, technically. The FDIC, then appointed the FDIC as receiver, and we would go in. Right. We acquiesced in their suggestion to close it early to facilitate notifications on the East Coast. IndyMac was a West Coast bank, so three hours behind the East Coast. Uh, we reluctantly agreed to that, uh, challenged it a bit, but we agreed to it, and and I do regret that because what happened was it was a Friday, and people go to their banks on Friday to get, you know, do yeah. transactions before the weekend, and uh, there it was. It was closed when it should have been open, and uh, so that, that precipitated a alarm with the public. Then we had lines, and we, we quickly got on top of it. Uh, we got the information out, assured people they had access to the insured deposit set up you know, extra space for people at uninsured deposits to come and talk with us and see if we could figure out what we could do to help them. And so uh, that that was that's kind of the backstory in IndyMac. WAMU actually, I thought went pretty smoothly. Uh, we had known for some time they were in deep trouble. Uh, it was as it was as I write in my book, there were significant and intense disagreements with the primary regulator about the state of WAMU's mm. health. But we were seeing uh, a slow erosion of their uninsured deposits, which was accelerating, and then uh, a conversion. And then they were going out and getting more insured deposits to fund themselves at higher rates, which is going to increase our costs, you know, ultimately when the place failed. So we uh, we solicited bidders, and uh, J.P. Morgan Chase uh, won the bid. I know there's been some speculation. We just handed to J.P. Morgan Chase. We did not. Well, you closed we, it on uh, a Thursday evening. That cl- that clearly shows that there was a conspiracy, right? I mean, isn't that what well, people right. were, were, were hooking <laughs> on to? Yeah, yeah, I mean, isn't everything? Well, there's just so, but, you know, that's the whole unfortunate. There was, you know, at that point, there was, so, there was a loss of public confidence and trust in the government. So kind of everything, we, and that's why I always tried to be transparent. I talked to the media a lot. We, we were, tried to be very open about our process. I talked about it in my book. Uh, the other visitors we, visitors we solicited, we just couldn't get anybody else to touch the place mm. except for Jeep and Morgan Chase. And I think you can see since they bought it, you know, it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. <laughs> they had losses on assets I didn't think they would have. So... Um, but it was, you know, we were able to resolve uh, WAMU by selling to Chief Morgan Chase with no loss to the deposit insurance fund. And actually, the market was up the next day. The stock market was up significantly the next day um, following that uh, that uh, failure. So I don't think there was uh, the following week there was a market uh, drop when TARP hadn't wasn't passed. And I think there's some confusion about. Whether that was a reaction to WAMU, I don't think it was. And I think if you go back and look at the press coverage at the time, yeah, I think TARP tar- tar- failing was pretty failing much tar- it right. Right. when it was voted down in the in the, so, was it the House. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I do think that WAMU, uh, and people like Tim Dyke disagree with me on this, but I, I do think WAMU was handled the right way. Hmm. And uh, yes, we made J.P. Morgan Chase bigger, but it was the best of the options we had at the time. And in, tor- in terms of avoiding any kind of interruption in the services that WAMU was providing to its customers, there was no disruption. Hmm. Um, yes, there were there were losses on, for the equity holders and the bond holders, as there should have been. That's what happens in a yeah. failure, whether yeah. it's a failed bank or a bankrupt company. That's what happens. But in my view, uh, in terms of system stability, is it's the regulator and government's responsibility to make sure the payment and credit services that is being provided to bank that are being provided to bank customers continue, but the stakeholders, you know, the investors, they should be taking yeah. some loss. I mean, they, they put their money at risk, and, and that's what should happen. So, yeah, um, yeah. 
I do. Uh, I know people disagree with me, but I, I continue to defend how Obama was handled. And I think yeah. given the options we had, it was the best. And there was no systemic disruption from Obama's failure. Now, what about um, what, what Kobe, well, though, was, was rather more controversial, right? I mean, not, not because it was necessarily it was, creating yeah. a bigger bank. Well, I think we can get back to bank size a bit later right. on. But, but first of all, you, Citigroup has an, uh, an assisted deal to buy parts of Wachovia, the assist coming from yeah. the FDIC, which, which looked weird. And then a week later, Wells Fargo comes in with an unassisted deal and in the end wins. Right. How did you get to the point where, I mean, ha- I don't, as I recall from your book, you weren't particularly happy about having to um, help sit, uh, what was the already a failing bank city by yeah. another failing bank, Wachovia? Right. Well, there were already discussions going on between Dick Kovacevic, the chair and CEO of Wells Fargo, and Bob Steele, the CEO of Wachovia, for Wells Fargo to buy Wachovia without any government assistance, which, is, as far as I was concerned, was the optimal uh, yeah. solution. And we were worried about Wachovia, and I was in communication with Bob Steele. Here again, we were not the primary regulator, OCC was. But he was very encouraged, and in, in the Sunday morning before the, all of this unfolded, he was quite confident he was going to be meet, meeting Kovacevic, and they were going to, you know, sign uh, sign the deal. And then all of a sudden, Kovacevic uh, pulls out. And uh, the day before, um, the New York Fed had arranged a conference call on Wachovia and invited the FDIC to participate. And I got on the call, and much to my surprise, Citigroup had gone to the New York Fed to request assistance from the FDIC <laughs> to buy Wachovia. Right. <laughs> and uh, so that concerned me because we already had these discussions going on where the government had no role and that was the best solution. And if word got out, as I believe it did, that there was some potential government assistance in the offing for anybody who wanted to buy Wachovia, Wells Fargo would, would pull out. And, and I don't know if it was cause and effect or not. All I know mm. is the next day, Bob Steele didn't have a deal. Dick Kovacevic said, no, nope, uh, they couldn't do it without help. And so uh, then we were kind of handed the mess because Wachovia was losing. Again, they were losing a lot of uninsured deposits. So uh, we uh, ran a very hasty uh, bidding process with basically two bidders, Wells Fargo and Citigroup. Um, I was concerned about uh, City buying Wachovia. I, I thought they were a weak bank. Uh, we were not the primary regulator, but some of the information we were getting up getting was not uh, helpful. The market uh, was, there's some bad commentary about them in the market. Mm-hmm. OCC and the New York Fed, their primary regulators, uh, said they were strong enough to buy Wachovia and participate in the bidding process. That was that was what we, we deferred to the primary regulator in terms of kind of approving bidders as strong enough to bid on a failed institution. So, we ran, uh, we ran the bidding process, and Citigroup um, made a much more favorable offer uh, to the FDIC, much, wanted much uh, less assistance than Wells did. I think Wells just overplayed their hand. Mm. And so we follow least cost resolution, the best price wins, so Citigroup won. It was announced, and then, you know, lo and behold, uh, <laughs> a short time later, Wells comes back in and says, no, uh, ap- we can buy it after all. We don't need government assistance. And uh, they offered a much superior price mm-hmm. to Wachovia shareholders and, and Citigroup. The Citigroup deal was contemplating. So um, at that point, yeah, we backed off and said, well, we can't get in the way of this. If Wachovia's uh, board and the shareholders want to take the Wells deal, Citigroup had not. There, several days passed. Citigroup had not finalized things yet. Mm-hmm. They were 
and I write about this in my book, they were actually renegotiating things. Even after it's been publicly nice. released, yeah. they were renegotiating the deal. And so it hadn't been closed. A couple of days later, they give uh, Wells an opportunity to come back in. Wells acted quickly, got everything signed, got board approval. And there was nothing we could do, even if I, I did not want to. I was perfectly happy uh, that the FDIC was not going to have to get involved. And, uh, you know, if the Fed had wanted to stop it, they could have. It, the, the acquisition did have to be approved by the Fed, not us. Mm. They decided not to, I think, for largely the same reason. So that's uh, that may be more detailed than you wanted, but that that's pretty much yeah. uh, what happened and how we got in the middle of it and, and how, thank goodness, we got out of it. So I mean, that's, that's, I think, the second time you mentioned issues with other regulators and i think you do go a lot into right. that in, into the book and i think you know ots i think was was one of the was the was the, the regulator that used to describe its banks as customers rather than um charges yeah, or whatever else which did. which was always bit although as i recall they also were one, one of the few ones to, to push lehman brothers to do a better job which which seems ironic um what do you think the best structure is for financial regulation um either in this country or elsewhere. I mean, we had so many regulators, often yeah, yeah. at loggerheads. In your book, I think you describe, I think on the, on the WAMU one, that within, uh, within hours of the, uh, of, of the OTS saying, no, it's still, it's still a decent institution, they ran back and said, actually, no, it's going to fail, or maybe it was OCC with Wachovia. Right. But the, the, right. the, 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 the poor interplay between all these various financial regulators really didn't play too well at times, although, as you were saying, on the debt side of things, it, it did right. in the end come up with, you did come up with a good solution. Should we just, right. should we be consolidating these into one or two regulators? Or what, what, as you look back now, having done this, what do you think yeah. is the best well, no, I, I think that was. So I think, I think the, you know, the positive thing is that we did come together. We did a, a reach agreements. I didn't agree with everything uh, that was done. But there were compromises, there was give and take, and we did come to agreement and we did move forward. I mean, you know, at the end, it was really just the FDIC, the Fed, and the Treasury. And, mm -hmm. uh, but the three of us, uh, uh, those three entities, uh, were able to come to agreement and move forward with the, the package of stabilization measures that did get the system stabilized. So um, I, I think you do, you do need to give yes. Was, was, were too many regulators a problem? Yes. Uh, but I do think you need to give uh, all everybody in government credit, you know, some uh, credit for coming together and making the decisions we needed to make. Right. But le leading up to the crisis, yeah, regulatory uh, competition was was part of this. There was competition between OCC and OTS for charters. Uh, we saw that, you know, in trying to get mortgage lending standards, that there was a lot of gamesmanship between those two agencies, and, and even getting agreement on mortgage lending standards. Um, there was charter competition, uh, and uh, that was not helpful. And then the FDIC was only backup regulator to these thrifts and these large thrifts and banks. So, and there were, you know, hurdles we had to go through, and that's been cleaned up a lot with Dodd-Frank. But, you know, our ability to get information was not always as good as it should have been. And then, you know, I think OCC and OTS, because they did view those banks, you know, somewhat as clients, they were protective of them and perhaps not as objective as they should have been in terms of the uh, the, the state of their financial stability. So w what I recommended in my book was that we just we have two regulators. You have the Fed for the holding company and you have the FDIC for the insured banks. That's where their exposure is. Mm. And I don't think you need the chartering agencies. Uh, but, but uh, you know, whether that will happen, I doubt it. You know, mm. these banks – their survival, uh, in large part, depends on having banks as their clients and their advocates, right, to, yes, to keep yeah. them uh, Yeah, they have no clients. If they have no clients, they've got no right. income. So. Well, that's right. You know. <laughs> well, that's the other problem. Yeah. With the, both OCC and OTS, they were 
And I think that's why the Fed and the FDIC were stronger regulators, more independent, because the FDIC collects premiums from all banks. They yeah. have to pay it. And uh, and the Fed, of course, has uh, its open market operations and, you know, its sources of income that are independent of banks paying them fees. Yeah. So, but OCC and OTS had to get, you know, examination fees are basically how yeah. they were funded, which was also part of the problem. And then, so, yeah, I think we need fewer regulations, regulators, but I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Right. So many people have said this and tried to get it done, and just the constituencies for each of these agencies is too strong. Yeah. Okay, and then let's, back, let's look at the, the banks themselves. So, obviously, after, after the, the big guys got in trouble in September, and then right. later on, obviously, we saw the TARP helping out uh, Citigroup and B of A twice and the other banks, um, FDIC was mostly dealing with hundreds of other banks that were much smaller and that got um, taken over, and, uh, and or you would close them, they get taken over by others, right. often in their local area. Um, but when we right. so there were there was consolidation at a much lower level, but the consolidation at the top left several banks much bigger. So obviously, um, Bank of America right. bought Merrill Lynch um, and got right. in more, more heavily more heavily into investment banking, um, and of course we've mentioned uh, J P Morgan and uh, Wells Fargo. Looking right. back now, do you uh, was that? I mean, I don't think you really have much choice, as you mentioned. But do you right. think creating these larger banks longer term is a problem? Well, you know, I was hoping that uh, through you know the regulatory reform effort, uh, we would have much stronger uh, regulation and supervision of risk, and, and much stronger capital requirements. That was a key problem prior to the crisis, is that they really loosened up on the capital requirements. Uh, we, we, kept a, we kept the requirements fairly strong for insured banks, but for securities affiliates, mm. the SEC and the Fed uh, allowed a, a lot more leverage through something called the Basel II Advanced Approaches. Right. So, um, you know, I was hoping that we would have much stronger capital requirements. I think that's really the key. Is, is making them delever. And so we did have incremental improvements in capital. Starting from a pr- pretty low baseline, capital has strengthened considerably, though, of course, now there's efforts to weaken those rules again, which, which, is, uh, which is sad. That saddens me. But um, I, uh, you know, so I think, yeah, there is too big to fail. And I think we've made, at least if these rules hold, I don't know if they will, We've made good progress in making sure there's additional capital to prevent a failure to begin with and to mitigate losses if there is. We now have Title II, which is a tool Hank Polson and Ben Bernanke and others did not have uh, during the crisis to resolve uh, securities firms or, or banking conglomerates. We just had tools to resolve insured banks. So now the government has tools to resolve an entire um, institution. And again, maintaining the funding and support for the customers of those failed banks so that they can, you know, if you're going to a closing on your mortgage, you're going to get your mortgage funded. Yeah. If you're a small business, mm. you need your credit line to make pro- payroll. All those services continue, but you, you you impose losses on the shareholders and creditors, which is how it's supposed to work. So we have those tools now, and then we have Title I planning requiring uh, the, the parts of the uh, – banking financial conglomerates that are not insured banks to try to be bankruptcy uh, ready because that's, you know, if they can go through bankruptcy, that's that's the best solution. Right. So this, those tools are good. But I think you also have the problem of just too big and too big in political influence, too big in influence over academic institutions, too big in terms of influence over think tanks, too big, frankly, in influence over some of the media. You know, yep. so you just have that problem too, and I think that's what we're seeing now with the effort to weaken capital, which just 
astounds me because I thought if we'd have bipartisan consensus on anything, it would be they need to have less leverage. Yeah. But we're seeing an erosion of even that, and it's because um, these be, they, they're just too big an influence. Mm. Uh, and and if, if that's the case, if we can't have you know the strong regulation we need to temper the risk these large institutions hold, then then, then they should be downsized just just for that reason, if none other. Yeah. Um, was there a moment, whether it's 2007, 2008, where something happened or you looked at the data and you thought, my God, actually, this is going to be a lot worse than anyone's been saying? Oh, yeah. I think we were saying that pretty early. I, you know, we were, I got to the FDIC in uh, June of 2006, and by the fall, we were, we were calling for uh, mortgage lending standards. Uh, right. We didn't have mortgage lending standards, and it took us forever to get those in place, even just for banks. And frankly, it was, it was good we had them. It was, it was too late by then to do anything. So, yeah, I think we were, and I think this has been well documented by a lot of people, we were uh, the first among the agencies to be sounding the alarm. And, and we were, you know, they discounted us. Um, we were overreacting. <laughs> yeah. You know, it wasn't going to be that bad. You know, housing's regional. You know, mortgages don't go bad. People pay their mortgage before they pay anything else. Uh, those those heady so, days yeah. where nothing was going to go yeah, wrong. Right. Yeah, right. That's right. So that was then. This is, you know, that was way before. And yeah, they were kind of looking at the mortgage market of the 1990s, and uh, they weren't looking at the mortgage market of 2006 and then 2007 when uh, lending had gotten completely out of control because of the securitization machine. Mm-hmm. And um, those mortgages were not going to reform. Anybody objected to looking at them would know. And we did that. In the fall, we went out and bought a database so we could see uh, what the attributes of mortgages and these securitization trusts look like. And it, it was pretty frightening. Mm. So yeah, we were we were sounding the alarm uh, early and then uh, and then really pushed once, you know, it, in 2007, it started, the default started to rise. And that was when we started calling for, uh, you know, wide scale systematic uh, loan modifications, not this one off stuff, you know, mm. individually negotiating each mortgage, that wasn't going to work. That's what servicers usually do, because it used to be very few mortgages uh, defaulted. And um, you know, and I, I think we, we had some measure of success on that. But there again, we were marginalized. I, uh, we held, we uh, hosted a series of roundtables in the spring of 2007 to try to get agreement among all the stakeholders that these loans can and should be systematically modified. And then it just didn't happen. Uh, after all this agree- these agreements and work, they were, the servicers were still just not doing much of anything except sending them into foreclosure. And so then I went public in October uh, in the uh, in the New York Times with an editorial saying they had to be systematically uh, modified. We needed to get rid of the you know the payment shocks and just convert them into lower rate uh, fixed rate mortgages. And I you know I was ridiculed. I got hate mail, and it, it was it was uh, it was not <laughs> it was not a well received uh, yeah. op ed. Uh, I mean, the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal both both endorsed my position, which which I took some pride in because they're mm. ideologically quite different. But yeah, absolutely. the popular reaction was, "Oh, you're trying to help these deadbeat homeowners," yeah. and um, we fought that all along. It was the, there there were some deadbeat investors, speculators in this market, no doubt about it. But I'd say two thirds of the market were people in their houses who just wanted to hold on to them, yeah. and those who were trying to help and and didn't do as much as we should have. Mm. We tried. Now, um, since the crisis, you well, you stayed on the FDIC till 2011. Uh, then, of course, you wrote your right. book. Uh, went into right. academia. You're on a number of different boards. Um, how would you say right. the, the, the crisis um, shaped your future career? 
Oh, boy, that's a good question. Um, well, I think uh, when I immediately left, I went to the Pew Charitable Trust and started a group called the Systemic Risk Council, uh, which is still uh, shared that for three years. It's a very uh, prestigious group, uh, a lot of uh, very distinguished names, Paul Boker, Jean-Claude Rousset, former president of the mm-hmm. European Central Bank, uh, Brooksley Bourne, uh, Bill Bradley, uh, a, a very stellar uh, group of influential people. And, and our goal is to just try to be give public voice uh, to system stability issues because, you know, too much lobbying and industry interests, frankly, control the debate. So that's still uh, what I, I love Pew to be president of Washington College. I, uh, Paul Tucker assumed the presidency, uh, the head of that organization, uh, at my uh, invitation. I was delighted. He's doing a great job. I still work with him on that. And uh, frankly, I would like to be less involved in financial reform <laughs> because uh, there are other things to do in one's life. But it's just uh, I feel like I still need to speak out because I have a unique perspective. Too many other people are not willing to. Either they don't want to or they're afraid because of the power of of the industry um so that is that is still probably an obligation more than a than a uh career fulfilling experience but i I feel like i need to do it Mm. and um you know i've enjoyed uh the experiences i've had it was a great experience with pew um i enjoyed being president of a college for a couple of years uh as is as has been the case throughout my career i've had a constant tension between family obligations and um in job choice, and so uh, I recently decided to just take a portfolio uh, approach to my career with my boards, as you mentioned. In my, I work continue to work on financial reform, continue to work with the Systemic Risk Council. I'm also on uh, Paul Volcker's Volcker Alliance, uh, which is uh, dedicated to improving the status and professionalism and respect of of public employees. Mm. So uh, that keeps me busy, but also gives me some time to spend with my daughter, who's going to be going to college in the fall, and my husband who's retired last yeah. year we'd like some more time together so Excellent. sorry i'm not not anything too exciting but it's it's just a fulfilling life i'm mm-hmm. enjoying it yeah. and um hopefully someday i won't have to be out there beating the drum on financial regulation <laughs> well let me ask you just one more question on that before i let you go so sure. and I, i'm pretty sure. sure i know the answer to this one given what you said but one of the we're also we've also been looking at another crisis from 20 years ago the the ltcm russia crisis of 1998 right. and the big uh takeaway from that was or should have been too much leverage uh, is a bad thing, and we saw that again right. uh, in 2007, yeah. 2008. Uh, and you've been talking about it on the podcast as well as in your books and elsewhere. Um, right. Is there anything else beyond leverage? that can be too much leverage is a bad thing that you say is maybe the, 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 the lesson we haven't learned yet from 2008? Or do you think that's the, the big one people are still grappling with? Well, I, I think uh, just short-termism generally. I mean, I said I think we're, we're it seems like we're regulating to the political cycle instead of the economic cycle mm. now. I think thinking through cycles, making sure the the banking system, the whole reason why we have deposit insurance and Federal Reserve lending facilities is to make sure we have a resilient financial system through in good times as well and bad. And so, you know, making sure that the banks are resilient enough whether it, capital is, is the most important, but longer-term uh, you know, funding is, is important. Guarding against excessive risk-taking, uh, which is what the Volcker Rule is all about, those are important components as well. And we're seeing you know, kind of across the board a weakening of those now. The same kind of you know, short-term thinking, amnesia, times are good, banks are profitable, why we need all this regulation, you know, we need to make sure they can compete internationally. 
and uh, and make credit available. And oh my gosh, there's probably too much credit already. You know, there's a lot of debt in the U.S. economy yeah. already. Yeah. I hear that as kind of fingernails going against a, <laughs> a blackboard. And yeah. and in terms of international competitiveness, our banks rebounded much more quickly than European banks. And why is that? Because they had more capital. Yeah. So capital is a competitive strength, not a weakness. Low capital just helps, uh, you know, uh, goose uh, return on equity uh, and the uh, the returns of bank management who are paid heavily in in uh, bank equity. They benefit from it. But in terms of making the bank uh, lend more or more competitive, that that's just nonsense. Yeah. And uh, it's just this urban legend I keep hearing. And I just wish. Uh, policymakers and members of Congress who hear that by end that would, would drill a little deeper and find out that's really not true. Hmm. Sheila, I'm afraid that somehow I think you're never going to get away from financial regulation. Man. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Well, uh, thank you very oh, anyway, much. You always, always there to fight the good fight. <laughs> exactly. Well, Sheila Beth, thanks right. very much for coming on the show. It's been great having you on. Great. Thanks, Eddie. That's all for this week. The Exchange is produced by Ben Kellerman and Andrew D'Antonio. Please do subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you source your podcasts. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Do please tune in for the next edition.